Good morning, everyone. We return to our study of Proverbs. We will be taking a look at the fourth chapter. Before our break, we got a little ways into that, but didn't do any in-depth analysis. So we'll hit that as we look at an address to sons, chapter 4, verses 1 through 9. We begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. As we go into chapter 4, we're going to see many of the themes that we've already seen before recur. And we're going to see uh, some hints at what is yet to come. But here in this address to sons, plural, we're especially given to see wisdom and insight, kokma and bina, as foundational for all other things. And of course, we can think of how that resonates with what St. Paul writes about Christ being the foundation. No other foundation can be laid except that which has been laid in Christ. And so we always, even as we're going through and meditating on wisdom and doing our literary criticism within the text itself and understanding what Proverbs means, what Solomon means on his own terms, we always want to have an eye to that broader context and the ways in which these themes manifest in the New Testament. We're going to do that in a couple of different ways uh, today. So right off the bat, chapter 4, verse 1, Hear, O sons, a father's instruction, and be attentive that you may gain insight. So this is also in keeping with something our Lord says, pay attention to how you hear. And one of the remarkable things that will stand out to you, and I hope it continues to stand out to you as you study the book of Proverbs, is you'll see how many of our Lord's sayings are actually wisdom sayings, a la the book of Proverbs, where he's describing a way of life. Indeed, we can even think of that as we progress along it even further along this text. We'll maybe have opportunity to meditate on that, where Jesus says, I am the way. And to think of way as manner or mode of life. Now, what can happen in the Lutheran mind, and, and I know this because I've suffered from it myself for a long time, is you go, well, that doesn't sound like the gospel mode or manner of life. That doesn't sound like the gospel, so this must be a second-class document or a second-class theological concern. But nothing could be further from the truth. Both law and gospel would be contained within this expression, manner of life or way of life. 
And so we're going to see that Proverbs does this, Jesus does this, and it becomes, it, it, the classic categories of law and gospel really sometimes don't fit. They have to be well refined in order to see how they fit profitably within this wisdom teaching of Jesus. Because if you simply heard Jesus say, pay attention to how you hear, you would go, well, that's not what God has done for me in Christ. That's required of me to do, so this must be law. So Jesus means this, then pay attention to how you hear primarily by way of the second use of the law to condemn me for not hearing. So then when Jesus tells me to hear, my primary response is, I'm so sorry I don't hear. Or pay attention to how you hear, my primary response is, I'm sorry I don't pay attention to how I hear. But is that what our Lord intends? No. If he intended that, he'd say, repent. <laughs> but instead he lays this out positively as a manner of discipleship, as a way of discipleship. So, if you will, put a finger or bookmark, whatever's convenient for you here in Proverbs chapter 4. Remember those words, be attentive. They're going to have a parallel in something that Jesus says in Mark chapter 4. So, go with me on to the uh, Gospel of Mark. And this is, a, this is a section that coincidentally I've been looking at with the men on our Monday night study where we're looking at the parables. And right off the bat here in Mark, Jesus has the parable of the sower, which of course is about the spreading of the word here in Mark's gospel in this very section, chapter 4, he goes on and describes it. So the sower is sowing the word. Jesus desi desires that all would be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. So he sows the word of the gospel everywhere. And yet we see then why is the entire world not fruitful? Well, because some lands amongst uh, the path and is taken up by the birds. There's obviously an issue with the quality of the soil because the birds don't come and grab it from the good soil. So as it bounces off the path, it's fair game for the birds. And our Lord goes on to interpret this as Satan coming and snatching away the seed. Is this familiar to you, hopefully? Okay. And then the second, it falls on rocky ground and it takes root quickly and springs up, but when the sun comes, because there's no root, then the sun withers the plant and it dies. Okay. So Jesus likens this, if you look at um, verse uh, 16 of chapter 4, these are the ones sown on the rocky ground, the ones who when they hear the word immediately receive it with joy, and they have no root in themselves but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises, just like the sun arising in the original parable, on account of the word immediately they fall away. And that's the language clearer in Luke's gospel, but also here that's the language of believing and then falling away from belief. Okay, and then Others, verse 18, are the ones sown among thorns. That's the third category. And you remember what the thorns do. They choke out 
the newly budded plant so that it can't bear fruit. And Jesus likens this to the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. We all know this in microcosm when we listen to a sermon or, or perhaps even more poignantly, the word of God is read and proclaimed in our midst and we don't have a clue what any of it was about because our minds were wandering onto those cares of the world or those deceitfulness of riches or those desires for other things, even if they're good. They're not, they're lesser good things. And then that word that was just sown by our Lord himself finds no place within our hearts. So um, we can even reflect on these in a microcosmic way about times in which the word does not hit home within us. But ultimately, Jesus here is talking about different people. So finally, in verse 20, Those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. Which soil do you want to be? Obviously. Obviously the good soil. Okay? And that's really at root here. That's what Jesus is saying in his own terms. The word falls upon good soil. The word itself is what bears fruit within that soil, but that soil is indeed different than the other kinds of soil. Now, directly connected with that is what follows in verse 21, which is really building to what's germane for our understanding of the language in Proverbs 4. So Jesus continues He says to them, is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket? No. In fact, lamps, of course, at that time are open flames. It may well light the basket on fire or be snuffed out if the basket is sufficiently large. Is a lamp to be put under a basket? No. How about under a bed? That would be a disaster, (laughs) especially if the bed is made of straw or some other highly flammable yet comfy material. No, but rather on a stand, for nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has Ears to hear, let him hear, which is thematic because back in verse 9, he says the same thing immediately after the parable. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And isn't that precisely what it means to be good soil? To have ears to hear, to receive the word in such a way that it bears fruit within you 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold. So, in other words, what, is our, what our Lord is doing here is a master class on discipleship and how it is that we are to hear as disciples. Now, the lamp is the word of God. Um, thy word is a... How does that go? Lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. So, it is the word, then, that is meant to be set on 
on a stand, not hidden away, not tucked away. And that word will reveal that which is hidden or make manifest that which is hidden and will bring to light all that which is otherwise kept in secret. So then verse 23, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And then here directly to the point, verse 24, and he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. And elsewhere he says, pay attention how you hear. So the how makes it clear that this is the mode and manner by which you hear. But it's sufficiently clear. Pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. Okay, so this has nothing to do at all with God making us good soil, which of course in its own right, in its own interpretation is true. That's just not what Jesus is interested in saying here. What Jesus is interested in saying here is, as his disciples pay attention to what you hear, with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Said another way, what you put into it is what you get out of it. Pastor, I'm leaving the church because I really don't, I really haven't been fed. Why didn't you eat? It was set before you every Sunday, and you refuse. I guess you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it. Well, that's insulting. You've just called me a horse. <laughs> so, this is, this is our Lord's own teaching in regard to how we hear, and what you put into it, you're going to get out of it, except that's not where he ends, because as with our Lord and as with the ways of God, it's never strictly meritorious. It's never ever one-to-one. Look what he says next. And still more will be added to you. You put in a one on a scale of 10, and I'll give you a 10. You put in a two, I'll give you a 20. That's our Lord's logic. That's his graciousness and goodness. But he does want us to pay attention. He does want us, in another context, to seek, to knock, to ask. Here to listen, to pay attention to what we hear. All right, so we've got this glorious promise that as um, with the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. And then listen to this now, and you'll understand it. Verse 25, for to the one who has, more will be given. Remember the parable of the man with the talents? The one who's given the most is diligent with it, and it produces the most? And he's given the most reward. All of this symmetrical. Okay? Whereas the man who takes his talent and buries it, is he diligent? Is he paying attention? Is he being a good steward? Is he putting any measure of effort in whatsoever? No, he's buried it. And then he concocts this excuse, because I knew you to be a stern and severe man, thus have I done. And of course in the parable, well if you knew I was 
stern and severe, you would have put it in the bank so that I could at least get interest. So you see, this is complete low effort. So even, um, and then of course, that talent, is it, it's taken from him, along with everything else. So a perfect illustration of this point, to the one who has, to the one who has received the word and pays attention to that word, more will be given. And from the one who has not, has received the word, but has largely rejected it, even what he has will be taken away. Okay, so this is our Lord's instructions to his disciples, to us, as to how we ought to hear. And in this case, the language of pay attention has been used with the background images of the good soil and the lamp that is meant to shine and to be received and to make manifest that which is hidden and that which is secret. Okay, Matthew has his same version of this, but I won't go into that. That will help us understand what it is our Lord's doing and why it is that just being like, well, is that law or gospel isn't really helpful. It is a manner of life that he's setting before us as his disciple. All right, any questions or comments on Mark 4 or any of that? All right, so then over back to Proverbs 4, and we're poised to see Jesus speaking in this wisdom tradition. And just as Solomon does here in chapter 4, so also our Lord in Mark chapter 4, laying out a manner or mode of discipleship. So once more, chapter 4, verse 1 of Proverbs. Hear, O sons, excuse me, sons, a father's instruction, and be attentive that you may gain insight. So obviously, we are um, people of the word. How does faith come? By hearing and hearing itself by the word of God. So we're monergistic in our understanding of the way the word works. No doubt about that. Then we are called as that word has done its work within us and given us faith. We are called actively to be attentive to that word. Why? That we may gain insight. So a really strong doctrine of the word, which we have, can sometimes lead one to think, well, it all happens automatically. To put it concretely, all I really have to do is make sure my derriere is in pew three from the back every Sunday, and the word will do the rest. The word will do the rest, which is why very frequently uh, someone could ask us in the afternoon, hey, what were, what were the texts about? What was the gospel text this morning? Uh, Jesus? <laughs> which coincidentally is about the same thing my young kids could answer at three or four. 
we want to be a little more attentive than that. We want to pay attention a little more than that. Again, the measure that you use, it will be measured back onto you and still more abundantly. So the point being that as the word comes, we want to be attentive such that we may gain insight. It's not like the Matrix movie where, you know, he just simply downloads a program into his mind. It's like, I know Kung Fu. That's not how God's word works, where it's just, you know, you can get it by osmosis or just the sounds of the pastor's voice wobbling your eardrum suddenly makes it so. That's not how the doctrine of the word works. That's not how the word works. Um, but rather, it calls us to faith and then calls us to attentiveness with the end goal that we may gain insight. And it is not automatic, but something to be gained. Okay, I don't want to belabor that point, but I do because it's missing. It's been missing for decades and decades of Lutheranism. Uh, and how do I know that? Because I've been a Lutheran for decades and decades. <laughs> All right, carrying on. Carrying on. Verse 2, For I give you good precepts. Do not forsake my teaching. And of course, hidden behind that, do not forsake my teaching, is the pull of the sinful flesh, which for no other reason than that it is good, rejects it and steers away from it. So do not forsake my teaching because that is a very real temptation and that is the natural inclination of our flesh. Okay, this father goes on to say, when I was a son with my father, tender, the only one in the sight of my mother, he taught me and said to me, let your heart hold fast my words, keep my commandments and live. Okay, now obviously if this is biographical, then we might be talking about David here, but uh, again, in this genre, I doubt that it is meant to be taken biographically, simply as a device. And he says, let your heart hold fast my words. So again, these words have a propensity to slip away. That's why the heart must hold fast to them. And keep the commandments. Now, again, when we see commandments, we don't want to immediately think Ten Commandments, although that's part and parcel, just everything that's been said. Now to the result that you may live and live. So these are no mere words of practical wisdom. These are words that give life. And so again, we see Proverbs is not interested in simply imparting practical wisdom but the word of God that is life. And then the mode and manner of life, or yeah, of life, that exudes and exhibits that life which is Christ and leads to that life which is in, eternal in him. Okay, so again, this is a matter of life and death. That's verse 4. Keep my commandments and live. Verse 5, um, get 
chokma, wisdom, that's the common word that's been used throughout, and bina for insight. And these recur, we've already seen insight back in 4.1. These recur again in verse 7. So get wisdom, get insight, do not forget, and do not turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake her, and she will keep you. Love her, and she will guard you. So now, wisdom has been personified again as a woman, not the first time we've seen this. But this is going to, if you go back to, um, let's see. Okay, go back to uh Chapter 2, verse 16, because this is a theme that emerges over time. And by the time we get into chapter 5, it's really going to come out. So if you look back at chapter 2, verse 16, there Solomon writes, So you will be delivered from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words. So sort of slowly coming into their own is this image of a father who seeks to marry off his son or sons to wisdom, not to foolishness. To wisdom, not to this forbidden woman, the adulteress with her smooth words. So this marital motif and theme, as well as these two women, um, continues to be developed albeit in subtle mode and expression here, but it's about to get uh, even more obvious. Okay, so back to chapter 4, verse 6. Do not forsake her, and she will keep you. It's marital language. And may even hearken back, as this is being spoken plural to the people of God. And view here is also you know, Yahweh and his people and that marital covenant that Sinaitic covenant language. Do not forsake her and she will keep you. Love her and she will guard you. So now we see um, action on the part of the sons, not forsaking and loving, and action on the part of wisdom, her keeping you and her guarding you. Okay, now this verse 7 is, is a little bit clunky no matter how we translate it. And I'll try to just read it as it is and then give you the sense. So the beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom and whatever you get, get insight. Okay, so probably the, the Rhodey Living translation of this. <laughs> the foundational thing is wisdom Therefore, get wisdom, and in all you're getting, get insight. The point being that these are the most valuable. These are the foundation. In effect, these are Christ. So nothing else matters relative to this goal and purpose of getting wisdom and insight. Okay, we're back to the feminine language in verse 8. Prize her highly, and she will exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. 
She will place on your head a graceful garland. She will bestow on you a beautiful crown. Okay, and now what we can see too is that in verse 6, we have the image of this beautiful woman, wisdom. If you don't forsake her, she'll keep you. If you love her, she'll guard you. And then prize her highly, verse 8, and she will exalt you. She will honor you. If you embrace her, she will place on your head a graceful garland, and she will bestow on you a beautiful crown. Now that helps us to understand verse 7, not merely as a foundation, which of course it is, but the beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom and whatever you get, get insight. Here that's viewed as the woman. So pursue, as you would pursue, you know, a potential spouse, pursue wisdom. So date wisdom, romance wisdom, win wisdom, get wisdom at all costs. Whatever you get, get her, my son. Okay, that's then I think the best sense or at least the flavor of verse 7. She's worthy to be pursued. All right, so of all the other things that man might pursue, which there are a ton, I mean, that's kind of part of our problem in the modern West, isn't it? We've got too many things to pursue. That's why we don't have any time. And much of it is enjoyable. Some of it isn't. But much of it's enjoyable. And so this text would be calling us to prioritize the getting of wisdom and insight as the foremost. And if that means other things get squeezed out, well, so be it. That is wisdom. So that brings us then to the end of this section, an address to sons, plural, which is chapter 4, verse 1 through 9. And then at Verse 10 will begin the fifth address to a son, which takes us um, through verse 19. But before we do, um, let me pause and see if you have any thoughts or insights or if the heater has lobotomized you as it's lobotomized me. I noticed that you've been sort of contrasting what I'd say a Lutheran monergistic view uh, with the reading, with uh, uh, right, this reading of pursuing wisdom and so on. And it occurs to me that we may have a confusion about how the Holy Ghost works. Uh, because I think when we say, you know, the Holy Ghost moved me to do that or something like that, sometimes people say, you know, God did it. God did all the work. They have the idea that God's moving you around like the demon moved around Reagan, the demon-possessed girl in The Exorcist. Right. You know, that first my head spun backwards and then I, I uh, you know, uh, did a good work or something mm-hmm. like that, mm-hmm. that, that God works that way. But when the Holy Ghost moves you, I don't think it feels any different from what we would call you deciding to do something or you thinking through something or whatever. I, I, I don't think that the Bible was inspired any different way. Right. You know, so if, if God isn't going to work on the writers of the Bible in some different way, make them move automatically, why would we think that when it comes to good works or, right, even accepting Christ, that he would operate differently, right? Yeah. Right? Uh, yeah. He operates us, and it feels like we're doing it. Just, I think Peter, 
when he was writing the books, you know, his letters felt just about the same as Stephen King felt when he was writing The Stand, right? He was writing a book down. And that was the whole, right? It's an article of faith that we hold that the Holy Ghost actually did that work. It's, anyways, that's my thought. Yeah, I think it's true. I mean, I think the only kind of recognition we have sometimes you go like, wow, that really isn't of my nature <laughs> to, to have done that good thing or to have enjoyed that good thing or something like that. Um, but right, I, I agree with you. And if we were to, I mean, we can always tighten this up dogmatically. We just don't want to do that so much that our dogmatic categories end up muting or muffling what the text itself has to say. Then our theology is the very thing that's keeping us from theology. <laughs> we, don't, we don't want to do that. If we tighten up the categories, we can of course talk about the category of justification, and we can talk about the will of, of man not participating in conversion, but the will of man rather being the thing that is converted. Okay, So the will of man is passive, in fact, actually resistant to its conversion, properly speaking. You could think of this as a light switch that's in the off position. Okay? The light switch doesn't participate actively in its being turned on. It takes a finger to turn on the light switch. Now imagine a light switch that was not only in the off position, but was resistant to being put into the on position. And that is then a fair analogy, all analogies break down, but a fair analogy that God has to come and flip the switch. Okay? But once that switch has been flipped, so to speak, there is light. Okay? And if we, if we then shift categories into the category of sanctification, then there is cooperation. The will that has been passively converted by the Spirit is now actively engaged and co-operates with the Holy Spirit. There are ways in which we can articulate that that are wrong. The Book of Concord, Formula of Concord, Article 2 on free will is exactly where you want to go. The whole first half of that article is describing justification, just as I have done, and the whole second half of that article is describing the cooperation of the will in sanctification. Now, to be sure, where we are in um, Proverbs and 4 and where we were in Mark 4 is we have been converted by the word, we are his disciples. Thus, our Lord calling us to engage and cooperate with him as we pay attention or be attentive to his word. And we just simply can't shy away from that activity language. If we do, we're going to be undermining Jesus at almost every turn. Because so much of what our Lord gives us is in regard to discipleship and in regard to our participation. So, I know that growing up as a Lutheran, I was always suspicious of um, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Well, I can't seek. What is Jesus doing? Maybe it's just an elaborate mind game. I mean, so the theology goes. It's just an elaborate mind game where he says, seek, and you don't seek. And he goes, ha-ha, you're a sinner. Uh, only problem with that is Jesus never says, ha-ha, you're a sinner. Okay, And nowhere in the context is, ha-ha, you're a sinner. Everywhere in the context, rather, 
is an actual setting forth of what it means to be a disciple of his. Now that you have been saved, now that you have been converted, what does this look like? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added to you. And then prayer is put always in the context of um, persistence and uh, asking, seeking, knocking. And then we've got action in regard to the word. Pay attention to what you hear. Pay attention to how you hear. All right, all of this cooperative language, um, thoroughgoing in Jesus' teachings, thoroughgoing in the writings of the apostles. So this helps us. I mean, we're not rejecting any tenets of the Lutheran faith or of the biblical doctrine when we say all these things. Rather, we're rediscovering them and making them clear once again because they have, for a number of decades now, become obscure. And with the result that we've all grown suspicious, I mean, what a terrible thing, suspicious of our Lord's words. He's just playing a mind game with us. So anyway, that's a long-winded explanation, kind of using your comments as a diving board to do my own thing. But yeah, I appreciate it. Can, can I follow up with just two thoughts? Sure. It please. seems to me the whole business about cooperation, of course, we'd say, in the, right, if we're, if we're backing up and looking at it, we'd say, even that's given by God. But, but I, I think also this, that if we're sitting in the pews or whatever, thinking, I better be careful not to try to do good works. We're <laughs> right. actually quenching the work of the Holy Spirit. Right, absolutely. The Holy Spirit's the one that's trying to make you do the good works. Absolutely. And, and it's going to feel just like trying to do good works right. <laughs> when right. he does it. <laughs> yeah, know? very well said. Yeah. Very well said. Yeah. I mean, it's like you sometimes, you sometimes get, the, get the idea that people are like, well, you know, it's like, it's like dad says to his son, hey, son, take out the trash. And if the son were a good, faithful Lutheran, he'd be like, well, Dad, I'm just going to have to wait till the Spirit moves me. <laughs> and then Dad's like, no, seriously, take out the trash. He's like, oh, thank goodness you've condemned me and revealed to me how flaccid my will is and how impotent I am to do your will and your bidding. Dear Father, I repent. Have mercy upon me. Yes, son, I forgive you. <clears throat> take out the trash. <laughs> And on and on it goes, right? And at some point in time, we have to be willing to say, this has become a parody. This, this theology has become a parody. It's not accurate in the least as to what the scriptures show for us. So yeah, the godly thing is, um, I mean, Jesus even tells a parable to this effect. Remember the boy who says, no, and then he goes. And the other one who says, Oh, I go right away. Yes, Father. And then he does not go. Yeah. So the point is that the one goes. Who does the will of my Father? Or the will of the Father? The one who goes. That's the point. Um, the, the, the prostitutes and tax collectors who actually are going to baptism and going into the kingdom, even though originally they rebelled and rejected and said no, now they've turned and went, they are actually doing it. The Pharisees answer this right, and Jesus says they're entering before you because you're the second son that pays lip service to God but won't go. You're the, guy, you're the little kid on the couch who when dad says take out the trash, you go, oh, wait for the Holy Spirit to move me. So yeah, our, our Lord even tells a parable to that effect. And this is behind, remember uh, from Sunday school, the man who builds his house upon a rock and the man who builds his house upon the sand. Do you remember the difference between the two? 
They both hear the word. But the man who builds his house upon the rock is the one who hears it and does it. The man who builds his house upon the sand hears it and does not do it. That, by the way, is the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. The whole theology and foundational and representative for Jesus' entire preaching ministry. So do not be hearers only, but doers also. Now we've got Jesus as the hadas, the way, which means a road, but also means a manner of life as one journeys down the road of this life. Okay, make sense? Hopefully so. All right, anything else on that one? Are we ready to jump forward? Okay, very good. So, on to verse 10. And this again would be the fifth address to a son of 10. Hear my son and accept my words that the years of your life may be many. And I don't think we have to wrestle through this again, but we can have these categories as like, yes, temporal blessing is often how it works. Where it doesn't work, say for example, even in Christ, um, whose years of life were relatively few, then we can see this broadening out onto eternal life and eternity. So, hear my son, accept my words, that the years of your life may be many. I have taught you the way... Again, this is manner of wisdom. I have led you in the paths of uprightness. When you walk, your step will not be hampered. And if you run, you will not stumble. Keep hold of instruction. Do not let go. Again, in the background is the sinful nature that wants exactly to let go and to have its own way. Guard her, for she is your life. And again, here the parallel with Christ as wisdom, as our spouse, should be obvious. Do not enter the path of the wicked. Okay, so... Strictly speaking, we can maybe find multiple paths. For example, back in the latter half of verse 11, there are paths, plural, of uprightness. Okay, But regardless of the strict way of speaking, we see that there are, in fact, two different general ways, two different general paths. One of wisdom, one of foolishness, one of life, then that's the emphasis. Guard her for she is your life. What's the other one lead to then? Death. So there's a way of life and a way of death. Now remember how Jesus describes these. There are two different paths. One is broad and one is narrow. Which one is narrow? Wisdom. Life the path upon which he leads us. It's narrow because it's difficult and it's contrary to our nature. 
and broad is the path that leads to destruction. Narrow is the path that leads to life. So I hope then you can see that Jesus is teaching in a long tradition of wisdom literature and these categories have their origin all the way back in the Old Testament scriptures. Okay, so binary, do not enter the path of the wicked. So there's the path of uprightness and the path of the wicked, broadly speaking. Do not enter the path of the wicked and do not walk in the way or the manner of the evil. Avoid it, do not go on it, turn away from it and pass on. And here we get some interesting insight into the nature of evil. For they cannot sleep unless they have done wrong. Which at surface level is an almost humorous kind of statement of like they have to check off their box. Did I do enough evil today? All right, then time to hit the pillow. <laughs> but in a deeper sense, they cannot sleep unless they have done wrong. There's an addictive quality to it. They can't even find rest or peace unless they've satiated the addiction of doing evil. That's the evil passions or desires within us that, again, Christians are called to put to death and not act upon them. Thus we sleep the sleep of the blessed, repent insofar as we've fallen, and sleep the sleep of the blessed. But here, just strictly speaking, warning not to go on this path and pass on from it. Now, what does evil present itself as? Freedom. Doesn't it? Here's the Ten Commandments. How restrictive. I don't want to be a Christian because I don't want to be told how to live. It's also narrow and dogmatic and moralistic, and I don't want anything to do with these strictures. I want to be free. Yeah. That's precisely what Luther calls the bondage of the will. The self curved in on itself so that I don't want to do what I want to do, and I will not be told to do otherwise, which is in fact not freedom, but slavery, slavery to yourself and specifically to your fallen self. So when I was uh, at the University of Colorado, we studied, studied the psychology of lizards, which has really helped me in the pastoral ministry. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> but a lizard, a, a lizard psychology, its mind works as such that it only has a relatively few amount of behaviors that it can do. Now, I've forgotten all of them, but uh, you know, when, when approached by some sort of hostile stimulus, a lizard really only has like three options. Bite, run away, or try to stand still and hide. Now, the lizard is free to do any one of these three things, but can it ever transcend its lizardness? No. It cannot invent a machine gun and use that to eliminate said threat, okay? It cannot um, choose to do something outside of its nature as a lizard. A lizard is always going to do lizardy things, okay? And that's precisely an insight into the way 
sin works. A sinner is only going to do sinful things. So the person who rejects God for freedom's sake doesn't realize that they've just limited themselves to what I want to do and who am I? Like a lizard, I'm a, I'm a sinner that can only do sinful things and I've limited myself and truncated myself. Because God would call us to do all kinds of things contrary to our nature. So the, the behavioral set that God gives us to do is how broad? As broad as God himself. And unthinkable. I don't want to go to Nineveh. You're going to Nineveh. Okay? Far broader than me the sinner. So me the sinner necessarily enslaved, finite, limited, closed off. With God, all things are possible. Limitless, broad, huge, behavioral pattern, unknown behavioral patterns available, and also patterns of thought and everything else that he invites us into. So you're either going to, in the attempt to be free, be bound to the narrowness of yourself, or contrarily, bind yourself to the word and find that therein you are free. That's what's at root where Jesus says, If you abide in my word, then you will truly be my disciples. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Wait, how do you obtain this freedom? By abiding or binding yourself to the word, then you are free. Where contrarily, whoever goes out and says, I'll be free, thank you very much, is a sinner and is what? Enslaved to sin. So there's the paradox taught by Jesus. That's where I learned it. And uh, this is then very much apropos to this discussion we're having where um, we are inclined to see evil as free and good as confining. But as we look at verse 16, we see that evil is so confining and has such an addictive element to it that they cannot even sleep unless they have done wrong. Second half of verse 16, they are robbed of sleep unless they have made someone stumble. And that's the nature of the bondage is it's so um, jealous that other people would be free of it that evil is constantly seducing other people to become evil. What's inherent and unrecognized is a jealousy of that person's innocence, or by another word, freedom. Now, this is relatively speaking, but there is why evil always has to seduce and pervert another, because it has enslaved itself and won't see anyone else free from the same slavery. Very frequently growing up, we just call this peer pressure. But that's really the nature of evil. Not free at all and seeking to bind others. Okay, let me try to uh, blaze through the remainder of this. Verse 17, for they eat the bread of wickedness. What do you eat bread for? That's your life. That's so wickedness is their life. And they drink the wine of violence. What do you drink? Wine for joy, for relaxation, and that's what violence gives them. So instead of bread and wine, wickedness and violence, why bread and wine? Yeah, because it's the Holy Spirit. Right, because the Holy Spirit knows full well 
the New Testament, the new covenant that Christ is going to come to bring. Okay, not the bread of wickedness, but the bread of his body. Not the wine of violence, but look at how wonderful that is. Or excuse me, the wine of violence, but look at how wonderful that is. In what manner does that wine that is his blood come to us, but through violence? So here is the triumph over the way of uprightness and the way of wisdom over the way of violence and wickedness. Namely, as violence and wickedness do their worst to Christ on the cross, he being wisdom and insight triumphs over that, prevailing over it, and turning the bread of their wickedness into the bread of his body, the wine of their violence into the wine of his blood, for us, for the forgiveness of our sins. It is a beautiful, beautiful foreshadowing of the New Testament that Christ comes to bring. And again, I'm not I hope that this is clear to you because in his words of institution on the night when he's betrayed, he says that this cup is the New Testament. All right, verse 18, but the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn. We can think of Christ as the righteous one, of course, and him being as the light of dawn. Um, but he makes us lights. You, he says to his disciples in Matthew 5, are the light of the world. And so, the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn. And, you know, again, if you're going to liken verse 17 to his crucifixion, which I think you should, you can liken verse 18 to his resurrection, where he is raised with the rising of the sun. He is raised from the dead at dawn on Easter Sunday path of the righteous is like the light of dawn which shines brighter and brighter until full day. So there's a beautiful poetic expression of the nature of evil going darker and darker until it is utterly devoid of light, eternal darkness, and the way of righteousness being a path that is light and grows brighter and brighter until the fullness of Christ, the fullness of the day and the new heavens and the new earth. The way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. And that's um, a connection I'll have to draw out next week when we have a little more time. But this is the idea that um, evil is stupid. Frequently presents itself to us as wise. And it might even present itself to us from time to time as being more wise than the wisdom we have. But a simple article of the faith that will eventually bear itself out, many of the great apologists of the church speak of it in exactly these terms, is that you can presuppose that even if you don't know how to answer the intellectual challenge of evil, you can presuppose that it is stupid that it is foolish. You just don't know how yet. But you will, by God's grace, learn and be able to reveal that. All right. Well, that'll be a cliffhanger for us. Till next Sunday. The Lord be with you.